All right, Mr. Robinson, welcome to our uh, About Respect podcast. It's our uh, very first one. Thank uh, you. Yeah. It uh, really is uh, designed to recognize those who um, have sacrificed for others. Um, it uh, gives you a place to kind of tell your story. And uh, most importantly, maybe there's something that uh, in your message that people can um, uh, latch onto that they can value um, based on your stories. Um, I've already, I'm going to give the listeners a little bio before we put it out. Um, but I first wanted to express my gratitude and uh, to your service for this country. And, uh, thank you for coming to, to do this for us. Uh, it was kind of neat. We met you, uh, our family met you, uh, with the, the, our relationship with the honor flight. And we'll get to that later in the, sure. in our visit. But, uh, um, I was hoping to really visit with you about some of the main themes that I've read about in your story, which are your, your, your early days, um, growing up, then your duty, uh, to this country, um, then your connectedness to family and some really, um, really special, uh, letters that you, you've had over the years that really shows your connection to your family. And, um, you know, going through, um, you know, just in the later part of your life or, weaving throughout all of your story is this incredible sense of humor and this sense of joy that you have about living. So that's kind of the theme that I want to talk about, but I'm going to turn it over to you first and say a welcome again. And maybe you could just um, tell us a little bit about what it was like um, in the early 1900s, 1930s and growing up in, I think it was California. Yeah, I grew up in Compton, California, uh, which is about uh, eight to 10 miles from downtown Los Angeles and about 20 miles from Long Beach. And it's right on the red car, which was the Pacific Electric train. And uh, mom would give me a quarter and I could go to the beach with a quarter with my little friend, Sam Adams, who was just lived across the street from me. And we'd go to the, the beach and play and get a hamburger and a Coke, nickel down, nickel back, and 15 cents for a hamburger and a Coke. Those were the good old days. And also, we could take the red car into town to Olvera Street and go clear the very end of Olvera Street, and they had the, the best tacos you could eat. They were just delicious. But... Um, that particular area where I lived at 730 East 91st Street is about five minutes from downtown Watts. And there's a very famous tower, a group of a couple of towers called Watts Towers that we I watched them build because the old guy was a hoarder and he would collect stuff and weld it together and eventually it came a piece of art. And that uh, still sticks in my memory to see that. We thought at the time, uh, my parents and I thought, the guy's probably nuts. But actually, he, he was really an artist, and he created this. And now you can go see it, but uh, I, th I think it's free. But it's pretty interesting to think that, you know, as kids growing up, we'd see this happening. And then all of a sudden, it's, it, oh, yeah, that's that's famous now. So life in uh, um, junior high and high school, wh what was that like for you? Well, um, uh, first I remember was Compton. And uh, the children were very free. I mean, you know, we could run and play and there was no, no uh, threat of anything. Uh, growing up, there wasn't, we, we didn't even think about uh, predators or anything like that. It was completely different from today's society where you have to warn your children and all that type of thing. And uh, we just were, we could just run and play and go wherever we wanted all over town. And, uh, Nobody bothered you. Nobody yelled at you or anything. It was very easy. And one of the fun things was 4th of July, you had firecrackers. And uh, there were different sizes, different kinds. And uh, so that was a, a big deal where you could 
take a little can, see how high you could blow it, and uh, uh, you could hold little firecrackers that were called butterfingers, little tiny things, and just hold them in your hand and watch them pop. And, uh, and so the safety issues were completely different. Uh, it was a, a real great time to grow up. And the children were really, truly happy. And I can't remember any time uh, growing up where we were really scared. Uh, there were a couple of incidents in my life that uh, kind of uh, marked me. Uh, went to Santa Paula, California, which is uh, up, up the up a little ways from Bakersfield, there's a um, Santa Clara River, and they dredged part of Santa Clara River for rocks and all because of the industry. Unfortunately, uh, my cousin drowned in that, and that marked me. Uh, he was like a brother to me because we grew up together, and his name was Alan. And uh, he drowned. I would have tried to save him, but I had a broken arm at the time, so I couldn't even get in the water. And uh, my son, one of my sons, named after him. But that uh, that kind of marked you mentally. And uh, I could swim, but he could not. And I, I was hoping to teach him how or help him, but uh, that didn't happen. I can't think of anything else that uh, would would mark you or or that that type of thing. So you in uh, you get through high school and then you enlist in the army in 1943. Well, actually, what happened was that I was working for my uncle in Tulare at Al Tapper's Chicken Ranch. And uh, my uncle asked my dad if I could come up and help him. We had 10,000 laying hens, and we hatched 2,000 baby chicks a week. We had to get up like Dr. Pepper, 10, 2, and 4, and hand turn the eggs because he didn't have an automatic thing to turn the eggs for hatching baby chicks. And we hatched about uh, 2,000 baby chicks uh, a month. And, uh, yeah, I helped him, you know, clean the chickens and, and all the things that had to do with, with that chicken ranch. And uh, uh, then I turned, I was almost 18, and I knew I was going to either get drafted or have to enlist. And so I went back to 730 91st Street and uh, um, went back to the, to the house and stayed there until uh, it came time to uh, go into the military. Uh, and they had me report to um, Fort MacArthur in downtown Los Angeles. And uh, there's lots and lots of stories there. Uh, we were there for about Oh, maybe two weeks while they gathered all the people they were going to ship to training. And, uh, of course, being a, a, a 17 or a half or 18-year-old with a bunch of other kids, why, naturally, you get into a card game. So we're playing poker with two or three other guys, and there was a guy standing back just watching us. And finally he came over and he threw some money in the table and he pointed to three or four of us and said, I want to show you something. Took us over and set us down in a, by a, a, a blanket in a, in a, a bed, an army bed. And he did things with cards you could not believe. His name was Harold Maddox. And he was a son of a professional gambler of the uh, gangs in Chicago. His dad was a 
I guess a Chicago gangster, but they were professional card players. And that impressed me to the point where I'll play you for pennies, but don't get me into a regular poker game. You know, I mean, right in front of you, you could do things with the cards and you never saw it. So after that, why uh, I, I didn't do much card gambling and neither did the other two or three kids. Unfortunately, that individual, Heromatics, later on uh, in, in a, uh, a battle got, uh, got killed. And I was in the Jeep with him when that happened. So if I could take you back, uh, Mr. Robinson, the, the, the decision point to enlist versus wait for the draft is a big decision. It's a decision based on, uh, well, why did you make that decision? What they did is they just, they, they called you up, put you at Fort MacArthur, gathered a bunch of us together, put us on a train, and shipped us to Fort Knox, Kentucky. Uh, the main thing was that they wanted people trained in armor, in, tra in tanks, and that type of tactics and things like this. I couldn't, uh, because of the tractor type of vehicle it is, uh, I, I couldn't push the clutch well enough to really make the darn thing go. And uh, some of the farm boys, because of the experience they've had, could drive like it was just their backyard toy. And so uh, they trained me for tactical reconnaissance. I had a good memory. And they'd say, okay, go over there and look at that terrain and then come back and tell us about it. And exactly that's what we did. That type of thing was very interesting and uh, had a lot of uh, positive experiences with uh, uh, that. But that's what I ended up doing type of reconnaissance. Yeah, so then you're, you're get out of basic training and then, um, you know, the real part of the discussion about duty is you get assigned to the 22nd Battalion, right? Well, yeah, but what happened, see, they shipped you to Camp Phillips, Kansas. You ever been to Kansas? It's just flat. I mean, you can see for miles. And we were in Salina, and Wichita was about uh, about 90 miles away, so you go to Salina, Hutchinson, and then hitchhike to uh, Salina, Kansas, and go to the movies and around town, and and we, we had that kind of duty. One of the things that I got to pass all the time is I had an iron, and I ironed my uniform, and so you look really sharp. There was no problem with me getting to get Liberty or pass as they called it to uh, downtown Wichita and uh, you, you'd get back go one day and come back the next so it was a, a nice little thing and Salina and Hutchinson were nice little towns but there was just not much to do there and they you know had a movie on the base so you didn't want to see that so there was other things and most of the guys went to drink and I didn't drink, so we just wandered around and looked at things and maybe go to a dance if there was one. And So are you assigned in the 22nd Battalion by then, or are you in a unit of some sort? What they did is they, they uh, trained us in tanks at Fort Knox. Then they trained us more at uh, Camp Phillips. And then they finally decided, okay, you were shipped to Camp Cook, which is now Vandenberg Air Force Base, California, and uh, assigned to the 22nd Tank Battalion as a reconnaissance, you know. And uh, they had gone through desert training out here in Indio, California, in that particular area, and I missed all that uh, because of the school and the training that I went through previously. So when I was assigned to uh, Camp Cook, well, I, you know, I'm just down the road from home, from Los Angeles. And uh, so one of the things that's interesting is that uh, a lot of the guys were absolutely astounded at California weather. Is it like this all the time? I said, well, 
Yeah, mostly. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's sunny and nice. When I got out of the service and uh, moved back to my parents' place in Monrovia, California, which is near Arcadia, the racetrack, I'd get calls, hey, Rob, uh, we just came back from uh, Kansas or uh, Oklahoma or Tennessee, and we're, we're out here in Burbank, you know. Funny that uh, so many of the guys, you know, and that, that was, that began the big exodus from every place else to the people in California. And uh, you talk to people, and even today, you know, here we are in Nevada. Where are you from? California. It was, I think the last count that I remember, there was like 38 million people in California. And now a lot of them are deciding that the taxes and whatever, and uh, so they're they're moving to Nevada or Arizona or some, but they they stay with the sunny states. Yeah. So you get into your unit in California, you train up, and then you're in the 22nd Battalion. Yeah, the 22nd. There were three uh, in the 11th Armored Division. You have three um, battalions: the 42nd, the 41st, and the 22nd. And uh, each one of those uh, is a complete unit in itself uh, with uh, tanks and hat tracks and reconnaissance and the whole thing. So it's a, it's a complete unit all by itself. And there were three of those and then an infantry uh, unit that made up the 11th Armored. And uh, essentially, uh, a division like that consists of about 10,000 people uh, to you know put it all together and uh, do you remember when you uh, heard or when your unit um, got the call to go to England do you remember well, yeah what they did was they, they we trained and then all of a sudden they put us on the train and uh, we went uh, right straight back to New Jersey and some of the guys were from New Jersey, so they got to go home for a few days. And uh, then they, you know, put us all together. And uh, uh, I went over on an English ship, the HMS Samaria. And I really enjoyed the thing. It was a little stormy, and I could stand on the bow and watch that darn thing rise and fall in the thing, and they called me back said, we don't want you on the bow because you might get thrown over. And uh, two or three of them said, maybe you should have been in the Navy to enjoy it because you didn't get seasick. You just, you know, enjoyed it. And the crazy thing is that being a clown, well, I, I decided that I had a good suntan and I had a mohawk hair uh, haircut. And some of the English, this is an English ship, having no idea that my heritage is English. And they thought I was a Native American. <laughs> I had this big knife that I carried with me. It was, looked more like a dang sword. And the English guys would talk to me, you know, and I'd grunt and look at them, and, you know, like I'd just keep staring at them. <laughs> just, just, and stay clear of that idiot, whatever. It was a fun thing to do. So all these young men are on a boat going to England. They yeah. got the call to go, your division, the 11th Armored, right? Yeah. You get to England, take us from there. Well, the thing is that uh, going over, we only lost one or two ships in the, in the convoy. And uh, it was a little nerve-wracking. I think we were... They sailed around the Atlantic for about 20-some days. It seemed like a month. But at any rate, they sailed around putting together this convoy and then uh, sailed us to England. But actually, we were at sea uh, for like, it seemed like a month, but I don't know how long it was, maybe three weeks. And uh, then they sailed us. We ended up uh, landing in uh, Scotland. And I'm trying to think of the port. But anyway, we landed in Scotland, got on the train, and and ended up 
uh, near Southampton in that particular area, they gathered us all together there. We didn't do any more training. Uh, it was more like uh, a vacation than anything. You could get free and walk the streets and see the little towns and all. It was rather interesting because uh, uh, my dad was from England. He was born in England. And uh, we used to talk about, of course, my grandmother and all were from England. And uh, it was pretty, pretty fascinating to look at that, know that th this was, you know, your uh, original country that the family was from. I did get to visit my uh, uh, heritage, Aunt Ida, and uh, that in uh, Kings Lynn, England later on after the war and uh, had the pleasure of taking them a, a lot of food from the px things that they couldn't get that i could get and had it shipped to them and i had traded with the russians on the border of czechoslovakia when the war ended you could get a px watch for seven bucks you could get it take it to to the russian border and get $300 American. So uh, we made money as fast as we could. A pair of GI shoes brought you 50 bucks. And the supply sergeant had just scads of stuff like that. He had to get rid of it. He said, load it in the Jeep and take it. I don't want to see it anymore. We take it up the border and sell it. So it was a, a, a great thing to do. It made a lot of good money. Send it home. My dad got... When I got home, he said, where did you get all this money? And I explained to him what was what happened. But uh, it was a, it was, I don't know, I, I think I had about maybe 10, 10 or 12,000 bucks. Yeah. A lot of cash. So do you remember, uh, so from England, then you get the call to go across the pond? Well, what, yeah, they put together, like I said, another convoy, sail around, and then we, we ended up, uh, I think, was, uh, what's what's Lahar? We ended up in Lahar, I believe it was, and uh, uh, of course this was way past D-Day, like several months past D-Day, and uh, the first thing we did was uh, everybody got in the assigned vehicle and immediately formed a convoy, went through Paris like a dose of salts. Just shoom, didn't stop to see anything. And uh, uh, we didn't know at the time, but that was the beginning of the Battle of the Bulge. And yeah, your letters say that you um, you start in, Bel your, your letters say you begin in Belgium. Right, well, the thing is that we were, we were in a uh, uh, convoy and immediately the 17th of December, we were at the beginning of the Battle of, of uh, um, um, Belgium, Bastogne. The 101st Airborne had gone in to take charge of Bastogne, then they got surrounded. And the fourth armor tried to get in to get them out, but they didn't have enough support. So we supported uh, the fourth armor and uh, could then get the 101st Airborne released so that they could, you know, maneuver a little bit better. And uh, from then on, we were in combat. Till the war ended, we were in constant combat. Uh, a lot of times it was quiet for a few days, something like this. But uh, uh, you couldn't put your gun down. You couldn't really, it wasn't safe. Yeah, you couldn't relax. You were, you were in the theater. You were at uh, skirmishes or... or uh, there were some incidents. I can, I can remember one time because of the... Uh, I went through Cook and Baker School uh, along with the reconnaissance. They always trained you in two or three different things. And uh, so we were up in the in the truck. They had stoves in in the bed of the truck. It was the cook truck, and uh, they'd ask us to make donuts. 
So we're up there making donuts, and I hear this rap, rap, rap on the tailgate. So uh, went out to see who what was who was tapping on the tailgate, and uh, there's two canvases at the back, so the light doesn't get out. So you go through one canvas, and then raise the second one. You know, it's pitch black. <coughs> Excuse me, you can't see anything. All you can make out is maybe a couple of images there standing by the tailgate. So laying down and said, come on up. Well, German is pretty close to the English. In fact, it's the English language is based on the German language. I don't know if you know that or not, but yeah. And we speak a little French, you know, and a little Italian and a, a little Spanish, but essentially... The English language is the German language. So these two people climbed up into the truck. They were about 16, maybe 17-year-old German soldiers. And uh, got them in there, gave them a cup of coffee and a donut, talked to them a little bit. You could speak broken English or broken German a little bit, you know. And then I'll say, no, oh, we better take them over to the corporal of the guard there. And and uh, so we took them over there and I marched them in and uh, asked the captain for permission, permission to come in, walked in with these two guys. And he looked at us and said, uh, okay, call the corporal of the guard, take them back, you know, and he pointed at me and said, you, I want to see. So I waited. He said, uh, the next time you capture German soldiers, take their rifles. Okay, sir. Amazing stories. <laughs> so in, uh, I haven't, by February, you, you're in Luxembourg. Yeah. And so you're moving, uh, so well, you're moving. We, yeah, from Belgium into Luxembourg, uh, uh, one of the things about Luxembourg was we could stay in a house if it was available, you know, and there were a lot of them because people evacuated. They just left. They got they didn't want any part of this. And uh, so we stayed in this house, and uh, I I got a, my sleeping bag. I was all in one room there. I thought, well, this, you know, kind of uh, take a nap. I had to go on reconnaissance later on, and I was trying to go to sleep, and the guys, well, you got light in here. We'll start a poker game, and I'm trying to sleep, and I, I said, well, I, I explained to them. It didn't make any difference at all, you know. Yeah, okay, we'll be quiet. You know, yeah, you can't be playing poker. You got to. So it, it annoyed me a little bit, but I went outside. I took a hand grenade, unscrewed the top of the darn thing, dumped all the pile out, and then uh, put screwed the top back on, and then pulled the pin and tossed it through the window. And you hear that pop, you got 10 seconds or less to get out. They went through the window and out the door and everything. It broke the poker game up real quick. I bet it did. And so then after that, they decide maybe they better play someplace else. So I did get a chance to get to sleep. So by March, you're in Germany. Pardon me? By March of that year, now you're in Germany. Yeah. And well, the, yeah. The, the thing is that uh, a lot of skirmishes, a lot of battles, and uh, we would go out uh, daily and, you know, they didn't have a, a a drone to go out and check things. So you had to physically go out and observe and memorize whatever it is as much as you could, come back and then show them on the map what you saw, you know, that kind of thing, what yeah. the armament was or the troops or anything like that. And sometimes they'd have us just uh, uh, stay for a, a few hours and then come back. Sometimes we went out early in the morning. Sometimes we went out uh, uh, at night and stayed all night. And uh, a lot of times why he had incidents there uh, observing 
one time, uh, my buddy and I went out on a reconnaissance, and we realized that the Germans were moving in, so we just stayed where we were. And uh, fortunately, why they they stopped before we they got to our particular particular position, and we were in kind of some brush and trees, and hunkered down in a kind of like a little hole or concave thing, uh, watching, and uh, it started breaking daylight, and. We looked up, and here's a gun barrel, a cannon from a tank, pointed right at us. You could look right up the barrel. And we waited till it finally got daylight enough to see it was a knocked-out tank. But that was a bad night. Your bet. So anyhow, uh, you know, that, that was... Uh, sometimes it was... Things would happen... Uh, especially on reconnaissance like that. Um, one time we were in a snowbank overlooking right near the Rhine River. And uh, we were in a snowbank watching to see what's going on. And the, the road was unoccupied. And all of a sudden we heard people talking. And I'd say probably maybe two or three com companies or a battalion of German soldiers walked by us, we were within 10 feet of them. And they all Amazing. just, you know, we had no idea that we were there. And of course, we weren't going to stand up and say, hi, right. you know. And uh, so they went on by. And so then we got back to camp and reported that. And uh, another incident like that same thing on the Rhine River, we were in a convoy going down the the parallel to the river and out of a little side road another column came going the opposite direction and uh, uh, it was probably maybe five minutes or so before we realized that the column going parallel to us but in the opposite direction were Germans <laughs> and, uh, and all hell broke loose yeah, it did. <laughs> and, and that, that was where I learned to, to learn the, the first German words are smoking things out, uh, Nick smoking, you know, whatever. And uh, so then uh, they captured they captured those guys and broke that party up. But that was a, kind of an interesting little thing to be involved in that. If you uh, are okay, would you uh, let me read one of the letters you wrote by April yep. of that year? Yeah, I can read it. And yeah. I, I chose this because this is written on V-mail. Can you tell us a little bit about V-mail back in the day? Well, you see, they had airmail, and then they had V-mail. V-mail was a little package thing, uh, like a, a small envelope, and you wrote everything you possibly could on it. And then they, of course, the mail was free. But uh, uh, that essentially was what was V is for victory, V mail. Yeah, so there's a, a, a really neat uh, uh, V mail here from Mr. Robinson. He was a very uh, notorious letter writer, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But now we're, in, we're into April of 1945, and he has it written down on almost every letter that he wrote. Um, he always dates them, and he always, when he was uh, authorized, he gave them the location. Yeah. And so this one is uh, April 29th of 1945, and it just says Germany in this particular email. Sometimes um, Robbie would uh, put the exact location when he was able to, uh, but this was just Germany. And it says, Dearest Mom and Dad, well, I guess you think I and um, I'm okay because I, I'm not okay because I haven't written in so long. But I've been moving so darn much, it isn't funny. I received the package of plum jelly um, and ice, uh, ice cream mix yesterday. Thanks a lot for it. I've been eating C and K rations for about three weeks, so it came in, came in very handy. I got eggs from place to, pay, place to place. And as I said, everyone has a house you can stay in. So you see, I don't eat very 
I don't eat very much. Besides, the rations are very good, and you can, you can let's see, you can eat them. So they are okay. I'm still in the kitchen. I'm behind the lines about 10 miles or more now. I have a big stack of letters from you from up to April 12th. Uh, thanks for the comb. I need it. I've been collecting stuff and I want to that I want to send home, but as yet I haven't sent anything f- to home. I have a real German flag and want to send it, that home. Sometimes I live in the field or in a barn or in a house and I sleep on the hay most of the time. Right now I'm in a barn. It is warm because we have a big stove at the doorway. I still feel we I, I still feel uh, that I want to get home more and more. I'm glad Wally got home. Maybe I'll be home too someday. Lots of love, Rob. Wally's my cousin. Yeah, and what strikes me about these types of letters is you're very young. You're a very young man. I'll tell you what. My parents and I had a good relationship, and I promised to write them, and I realized when I went into service that, A, I was an only child, and uh, B, uh, they were probably worried sick because this, here's this kid, you know, and, and even though he's 18 years old, he's still a kid. And they put him out there in, in uh, right in the front lines. So I made sure that I would write them as near as possible uh, two or three times a week uh, if I could. And... Uh, just to keep them informed so that they didn't uh, fall apart. <laughs> yeah, yeah was, uh, there's t- um, over 100 letters here at the, and communications between you and your family. Right. And then so uh, I, I uh, saw another letter that I just wanted to comment on. It was, now you're in, is it Hoblock, Austria? Or yeah. Haslock? Haslock. Haslock, Austria. Yeah, Lord. Yeah, and we're in May of 1945 now, and the unique one of this is you 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 describe in detail an actual skirmish that you got involved in. It's one of the few times you actually detail them out, you know, in writing on right. the skirmish, and you actually draw a map this time uh, of the the entire uh, of the entire incident, and it's a, just a really neat little map of um, um, a probably a very scary time, and he. Uh, described in detail uh, this incident well, that, yeah. when you he was see, under reconnaissance. Yeah, we couldn't do this until after the shooting stopped. Right. But we ran into this particular, it was a trap. We went in and reconnaissance and found this hotel with an 88-millimeter cannon in the middle of the hotel pointed right down the road. And then on either side of the road were kartoffel piles, which is potato in German. And they would... Uh, harvest the potatoes and then pile them in a pile and cover it with hay and dirt to keep them while until uh, they use it. And so they they use that as as a barrier or a, a cover is to set up some firepower behind it. And uh, so we reconnoitered this whole thing. And it looked like it was clear, and then they came back in the meantime, so it was it was a trap, and we ran into this this incident. This is one of the places where uh, we had quite a little battle, and uh, it also was the place where uh, Harold Maddox got killed, and uh, so it was you know. Uh, we were under fire there for oh, maybe, I don't know, a half an hour, 45 minutes before we managed to uh, win. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's what you'd call it. Yeah, you, this particular uh, letter, you described them. They were like um, somebody came out of the, uh, was it a barn or a home, and pretended to wave a white flag. And right. he was walking towards you behind a rock or a, right. something where it was disguised, and, but there's actually firearms. D- d- yeah, dove out of sight and then opened up. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it was, uh, yeah, dirty pool. Dirty pool, yeah. <laughs> nevertheless, that's war. Yeah. I mean, there, there's uh, 
But yeah, it was it was uh, uh, one of the things that, that we usually didn't run into too much of that. Unfortunately, as the war was ending, uh, the Hitler Jugend did not surrender. And they were young kids, 16, 17, maybe 15. And they were going to fight till the bloody end. And that's exactly what happened. Very unfortunate. Because the war was ending. We knew it was. We wanted to take them prisoner and not kill them. And that didn't work out. It was very sad, you know, to have that. Yeah. There were a lot of incidents. Uh, we took a lot of prisoners and had uh, the camp set up. And uh, there were a large group of prisoners behind this one particular gate carrier. And then there was a smaller group. And the smaller group would come and go. And they were German prisoners. And I would ask the CO, what's the deal on that? Captain Haynes and I trained together all the way from Fort Knox, Kentucky to the end. And uh, uh, he said, well, most of those were just regular German prisoners. And then there's a small group, maybe 50 or 100. Well, how come they can come and go? What's the deal? He said, well, they're, uh, they're a little different than the rest of them. And I... I Finally found out they were Masons. Oh. And I don't know if you know anything about the Masons or not, but uh, they're worldwide. Yeah. So do you remember, I think in one of your letters, you indicate that you were in Linz when the, the war ended. Yeah. Uh, you write a letter, I think it was Linz or Lenz? Linz. Yeah, Linz. Yeah. yeah. On the Danube River. Uh, that's where we ended up. Uh, 1945, uh, May the 6th, I think it was. Yeah, May 6th, yeah. And uh, the Danube's not blue. It's a dirty brown <laughs> like every other river. <laughs> it's a myth. But huh? uh, yeah, Linz, Austria. Um, little incident there, there was a winery in Linz, and the guys broke into the winery and being a bunch of idiots, took a submachine gun and shot at some of the barrels and the wine was just pouring out on the floor. And they go over and get a cup and get a cup of wine, you know, and had no idea that this is, this is a very valuable asset. And uh, my boots got soaked in wine. So after walking into the uh, commissary or the chow house or wherever you, you know, later on, people smell that and say, what do you got to drink? And I didn't drink. And they knew that, but I smell like wine, you know, because of the shoes. It's sad. And then so after the, the official ending of the war, you had a, a responsibility and some duties. Yeah, well, um, the thing is, for some reason, I seemed to communicate with people very well. And uh, so they realized that and they had me stay and the Germans had conscripted people from all over the countries that they occupied and put them into camps to work. So they were from Hungary or Czechoslovakia or uh, wherever, Romania, wherever. And so we escorted them back to their country uh, on, a, on a train, take them back to the day. And, and I could communicate with them pretty well, so uh, they understood that. We were escorts. We weren't guards. We were escorts, taken back to wherever they were from or near there. And uh, so I got to travel all over Europe because of it. Czechoslovakia is not a country. It is a group of countries like, like California or Nevada and Arizona. And uh, you're from California or you're from Arizona. And that's what they were. They were Slovak or from Hungary or from that particular area. And I don't know if you know anything about the history of that. 
but they've been fighting over that particular area for centuries. And uh, so it's it's pretty interesting. The people are pretty dedicated to their town and their particular area. And uh, so there, there, there is really no Czechoslovakia. It's Slovak and Hungary and uh, part of Armenia and, you know, several other uh, ethnic groups. And uh, they identify themselves by that, and their language may be a little different. One of the things that I, m- I noticed in your letters was the discussion about uh, points. Yeah. You, you would get, can you tell us a little bit about points? And Well, you got a point for each battle. Or, yeah, you got a point for each major battle, I think it was. You got so many points for each month that you served in, you know, you got so many points for combat. So they put all these together and if you had 48 points or more, you could go home. And because I had 48 or more, I was going home. And Captain Haynes said, no, you communicate. Unfortunately, we need you. You're you're gonna stay until we can, you know, so I stayed, uh, you know, you're under orders and you're in the army. So what are you going to do? You know, but, uh, I now realize that it was a grand opportunity to tour Europe <laughs> <laughs> points. Uh, and, and actually, uh, I had enough points to go home, but, uh, the, 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 no, you're not going. So the post-official uh, war time period brings you to one of the most uh, public um, moments in the post-war history, which is in Nuremberg. Yeah. Uh, you're, you you happen to be involved a little bit in... Well, they, they assigned uh, our battalion. I think at that time I was in the 4th Armored 35th Tank Battalion. And they assigned us uh, to Nuremberg for guard duty. So, you know, you're just out there with a gun. It's just totally ridiculous. I mean, what you, what are you guarding anyway? You know, walking up and down a road. And, you know, but that was the Nuremberg trials. And uh, so I, I didn't get to see any of it. But uh, you were outside. You know, it's kind of like being outside the ballpark and the game's going on. Whoopee. So the, when do you return? When do you return back to the States? Well, um, like I said, I had more than enough points. And uh, they finally put us together with a group and said, okay, uh, we're going to ship you home. And uh, they put us on the USS George Washington, which was the largest ship passenger liner the United States had at the time. And uh, we sailed out of La Havre on the smoothest sea you can imagine. And uh, I got seasick for three days. Just, it was just totally ridiculous. Going across, nothing bothered me. Coming home, I think it was tension. You know, the expectation or whatever it was. So I was seasick for two or three days. But uh, I was with the, a group we put together programs to entertain the troops, to help organize a band and uh, emceed it. And we did a lot of that kind of thing. And uh, so they had a program called CATS, C-A-T-S, Civilian Actors Technicians, and they would put us together and say, uh, we're going to put on a play. And I was actually casting a play when I came time to go home. And I was a little disappointed I didn't get to play. But uh, anyhow, uh, we did put on a, a program on board to USS George Washington for uh, uh, the troops. I could do uh, a lot of different kinds of voices and that kind of thing. And so I uh, did that type of thing for uh, going home. You know, it was a great experience because you're up above looking down on the whole ship with all these wax and nurses and GIs 
down below, and you're you're up there doing a little entertaining for him, which was a lot of fun. Enjoy it. So yeah, our you know our generation, um, you know, we're kind of two generations away from that particular time, and you know, it's just. Uh, quite uh, amazing and miraculous for us to even conceive, you know, sending our young children over um, to fight, you know, across the continent. And so the the duty part of your life is an incredible sacrifice. What they do is uh, indoctrinate you. Uh, they, they tell you how necessary it is and how important it is and what you're expected to do and that, you know, and they, they did that with everybody, the war effort, you know, so I don't care if you were a civilian or a uh, military, uh, they made sure that, that you felt responsible to work in the factory or to serve the country or whatever, I don't care if you were Navy, Marines or whatever. And so you had that, uh, type of indoctrination that made it important. Did you know that on Tarawa, the island of Tarawa in the in the Pacific, they took that island. They killed a whole battalion, not a battalion, a division of Marines, 10,000, to take that island. And that's a sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. So we move on from that. Um... Uh, extraordinary uh, duty and sacrifice to our country to this idea about I, I have a binder in front of me or right off to the side of me that's almost three inches, two and a half, three inches thick of uh, wonderful letters from Robbie to his parents and his aunt and yeah. um, just an extraordinary uh, depth of, of letter writing. And I think you alluded to it before, but why'd you write so many letters? Well, like I said, being an only child, and uh, my one aunt and uncle that I had, uh, my cousin Alan was drowned, so I was kind of like a surrogate son there, and of course my grandparents. And uh, so I would try to write them. They would send me things in the mail, you know, food and whatever. They were very supportive, so I tried to uh, write them back to let them know what it, whatever it was that they sent me, thank them for it, and also inform them of what's going on. So you tried to sit down and write a letter every time you have a chance, which is fairly frequent. You know, you have a few minutes here and there, and it might take two or three days to end up uh, uh, putting a letter together. But... Uh, that's very important. I have I had kids, and thank God none of them had to go into service, and uh, all. But I would uh, think about it today, and it would just scare me to death to think that they would have to be in the same situation. And uh, I realized also that uh, being an only child. Uh, there were a lot of people who had their eyes on you. So you communicated, said, hey, I'm okay, you know. Fortunately, it worked out pretty good. Yeah. yeah. It did work out really good, and that kind of brings me to the last theme that I have taken uh, in knowing you just a little bit that I have. And um, you have an incredible sense of humor. You talk about um, living a life of joy and joyous moments. Take us through the post-war, coming back to America and living a life the way that you have. And it just seems uh, you're, you're, it's fun to be around you. It's fun to listen to you. Well, um, the, the thing is that, that uh, um, when I came home, of course, I mean, now you're, you're out of the service and you're free. Uh, you know, you realize you had a job. My dad was an electrical contractor, electrician, and I had he had trained me to be one, to be an electrician by the time I was 18, 19 years old, 17, something like that. Uh, I could help him and we could do little odd jobs. 
And uh, so I, I didn't come home with uh, uh, nothing to do, in addition to the fact that I had a lot of money. I, when I stop and think about it now, I'm astounded at the amount of cash that I had. And uh, one of the first things I did, my dad was contracting uh, electrical jobs out of the back of his Studebaker car. And I went down to Ed King, Studebaker people, and went in and uh, started looking at trucks. And Mr. King came out because he knew my dad. In fact, as we did his electrical maintenance on the, on the uh, agency. And uh, he said, well, what are you looking for? Well, I, I wanted the little Skyway. It was a little Studebaker that looked like it was coming and going. It was a very advanced, uh, pretty little car. And they wanted cash under the table on top of the thing. And that offended me. I said, I, I, I don't agree with that, and I'm not going to buy. What do you want for the truck? He said, well, it's $1,249, but you got to go take, you know, you have to bring your dad down. I said, why do I have to bring my dad down? Well, how are you going to pay for it? I had $1,500 in cash in my pocket. I pulled this out and held it up to him. He started shaking. And uh, then he realized that I was old enough to buy the truck. So I bought the truck with a tank of gas for 1249 bucks and drove it home. And immediately we loaded it up and went to work. Yeah, a little Studebaker. And I have pictures of that truck. So carrying on from there, you, um, many years, you get involved in all kinds of different things throughout the course of your life. Well, yeah, the, the, when, when you go to school, you know, I, I went to Pasadena City College and uh, majored in theater and drama and was in some plays. In fact, as I played Heaven Can Wait, I played uh, uh, the fight manager. And uh, I don't know, I was in a, a lot of that, a lot of theater. It's it, it's just a hobby that I enjoyed for a long time. And uh, it's kind of sad because none of my kids have ever seen me on the stage. And yet I, I did all kinds of stuff and I have pictures of it, you know, uh, and that type of thing. And then I had the ability to do, at the time we had a lot of radio programs, but no TV. And I had the ability to mimic a lot of the radio voices. And uh, so I put together a stand-up thing with that, and I could do Donald Duck and uh, several other different kinds of uh, radio characters. And uh, so we did all that for for fun, just uh, put a put a program together and entertain people. And uh, it was just just something to do, like a hobby, you know. People read and different things, so. Yeah, it was just um, whatever you're interested in, you kind of pursue it. You know, if you like to read, you read. Stamp collect, coin collect, or whatever you do, you know. And uh, so the, the theater thing was just, you know, part of being a ham. That's about it. So what if there's a message that you could give everybody and anybody that's listening, um, what types of uh, messages would you want people to know about what's important in life and, uh, and what you've experienced? And When you get up in the morning, before you go to bed, think about what you want to do or what you want to accomplish or what you want to, you know, what, even what you want to eat for breakfast. Make up your mind, well, tomorrow morning I think I'll get up and have oatmeal or bacon and eggs or uh, biscuits and gravy. So you got a little goal. And uh, make some other kind of things, you know. Now you're retired, so you can't just get up and say, oh, well, it's another day. You have to have something to look forward to. And so you make some plans. Get up and have a purpose 
and uh, get yourself squared away and then do whatever it is you're thinking about. And that that keeps you going. You can't just vegetate. You have a plan, and uh, sometimes the plan doesn't work out, but at least you had one. Well, that's great advice from a great man, and I thank you so much for taking the time to take us through your your story. Uh, Mr. Robinson, we uh, appreciate you so much. Well, you're more than welcome. And we're going to sign off from Bout Respect. Oh, thank you. Thank you.